from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty on demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival, presented by Capital One. I Heart Country. Jason Aldean. Keith Urban. Jelly Roll. Old Dominion, Lady A, Riley Green, Ashley McBride, Brothers Osborne, Walker Hayes, all hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th, stream only on Hulu, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. I'm David Grosso, and you're listening to Follow the Prophet. Today, I'm joined by someone who has a pretty interesting perspective into raising money and to getting businesses started. His name is Mac the VC, otherwise known as Mac Conwell. He's joining me today from Maryland. What's up, Mac? How's it going, Dave? It's good to be here, man. So when you meet people in the elevator, what's the elevator pitch you give them? What's the elevator pitch I give them? I tell them, if you give me your money, I'll make you more money. Well, that's pretty convincing. Tell me more. <laughs> that's the point of elevator pitch, right? You want to get to the point where somebody says that ask you more. Um, no, so um, at Rare Breed Ventures, you know, we look to invest in companies 
uh, with rare breed founders that can be found anywhere, not just the major tech hubs. So we're looking for the opportunities that are overlooked and counted out. So let's talk about that. Money gets distributed to tech companies basically in the Northeast and in California and everywhere else. It's just absent. Why is that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I do know. It has to do with the density of where the venture firms and the capital are. So you got Boston, but Boston's because that's where the life science hub is. And so there's a density of capital for life sciences. You got New York because that's the financial capital. So that's where all the big PE firms are, financial firms, and they got interested into doing venture investing. So there's a big you know collection there. And then you got Silicon Valley, which is its own unique thing. But in the early, you know, 1900s when we get around the times of World War II and even a little earlier you had a lot of government money going in to support the war efforts and support all this creation of new technology which led to this boom of technology companies and led to a boom of capital that just kind of centered there and so you just got this density of technology and capital which attracted more and by the time everybody else figured out what was going on, they had a 50-year hard hit start. <laughs> and so, you get so, these dense pockets. So how did this happen, though? Because, you know, even when we were little kids, Matt, because I'm going to assume you're about my age, there wasn't really a big difference in cost of living and in jobs across the country, right? And now there seems to be two Americas, right? These yeah. hyper-expensive, technology-forward America. And then this left behind America. How did that happen? That happened as when you get past the, 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 the great migration in the 60s and into the 1970s and 1980s, you had this proliferation of people leaving out of the, the rural parts of the country and going into the metropolis, into the metropolises and major cities. Right. And as you had people chasing the American dream, what we've seen over time, what we've seen time and time again is that money leads to more money, right? And so the rich get richer, and as they do, they start to leave more and more people behind. That's how you get a minimum wage that's been left behind for, for damn near generations at this point. Because the the folks making money are only thinking about how to make more money. Like we see this in large tech firms where that's why the, the show what is it um, Undercover Boss is so interesting to me, right? Because you have all these I've seen it these CEOs who work at a point where they're detached from the day to day work. So the way they see people spreadsheets, and then and on the spreadsheet every person is equated to dollars. And so if we can save fifty cent here, twenty five cent here, or a dollar here. That saving a dollar on every person here leads to a saving millions in aggregate. So yeah, let's start to cut things. Or you have things like shrinkage. So like over time, as inflation goes up, the sizes of products go down. Because it's easier for a cereal company to shrink the size of a box than it is for them to make it cheaper. <laughs> and so, or make it more expensive. So instead of changing, making the price more expensive, they just make the boxes smaller. And those little things add up to more money because greed is undefeated, right? And so that's what happens. It's really all about greed. But in the end, Mac, we know that most job creation, most big ideas, most economic growth doesn't come from people who make cereal boxes. It comes from small business, right? It doesn't come from these big conglomerates. In fact, these big conglomerates buy these small businesses. They gobble yes. it up to guarantee growth. So how do we support small business? 
We support small businesses by shopping and spending our money there, right? You support with your capital. If you want to support small businesses, shop at small businesses, right? Like, you know, instead of going to the major jewelry store in your local mall, go to the local jewelry store down the street from your house, right? You know, the way you support small businesses is you fund them. You give them capital. You give them the opportunity to give you that high touch feeling. Because, like, once you get to the big companies, you know, that that white glove, you know, community feel disappears. And they all try to do it. They all come up with, like, departments of their their, their companies to try and do community outreach and community touch. It's never the same. Right. It's like going to a deli where, you know, the owner and you've known them for years. And so the way we support them is we give them capital. The way we support them from like a venture standpoint is we don't (laughs) like, unfortunately, a lot of small businesses do not fit the financial model of venture capital, which is why venture capital is only one portion of the financial stack. Right. I think very often people look to VCs and be like, hey, you need to solve this. You can't just do the big tech companies. You got to do. These small businesses, too. The, the business model isn't fit for that. And the problem is we haven't innovated to allow other new financial products or to really pump up other financial products like revenue-based investing that really do fit the small business model. So we need more people actually innovating and creating new financial products to support small businesses. We've gotten to this point where everybody's just like, well, this is how things have been done. It's been this done this way forever. It's like, no, we can do new things. This is this is what we're about. We create things to solve problems. This is a problem we have. Let's create something to solve it. And I don't feel like enough people are spending enough brain power to solve these issues around. No, we just try tried and true formulas. That seems to be the problem across society. But I want to push back on you, Matt, because we always mm-hmm. say that, like, oh, you should shop at a small business. But I'm a millennial. I'm just trying to make it here economically. I'm not responsible for the state of the world. I like my Starbucks points. I like my 5% back on my prime card. I like my predictability. I want to save money. And as much as I care about small business and want them to succeed, I also care about myself. So how do I balance those? That's a personal decision. You got to decide what matters for you, right? Does your small business, the small businesses in your local community matter more than you getting that Starbucks coffee? If you have to pay an extra 50 cents more to get coffee at, you know, Jenny's coffee shop versus going <laughs> to Starbucks, where are you going to go? And those are the personal decisions that we have to make every day. And to your point, you know, you just want to save money. You're just trying to you're just trying to make it happen. There are a lot of small businesses that actually offer better price products. We've been conditioned to believe that like, oh, all the places we go now give us the best prices. When in actuality, we actually stopped searching for the best prices. We just got lulled into just going to the same places we always go. But at the end of the day, like those are personal choices. Like where you go to shop, where you spend your money, you get to decide that. And if you just want to go to all the places that save the most money, fine. But if you really want to support your small businesses, then you got to do that. You can't say I support my small businesses, but then don't spend your money there. Because then you don't really support them. You just <laughs> you're now just being a performative. You're just being a performer, right? This is, oh, you're this is just what you virtue say to get signaling. clicks on Facebook. Yes, you're virtual signaling. <laughs> this is how you get clicks on Twitter. Like, oh. No, you make a really good point about big business. They have convinced us that they are the best deal, but oftentimes they are not. That is an excellent point. So let's talk about the proverbial, you know, low-income neighborhood, we'll call it. Some people call it the hood, whatever you want to call it. How do we change that? 
Because, you know, we have this idea in our society that poor areas are poor because, you know, they deserve it or I don't know, or because of historical injustices or, you know, name your basket of, of tropes about bad neighborhoods. So how do, how do we make it better? We need to stop discarding portions of our communities. Um, I'm from Baltimore, right? Sanchester Windtown's a, a, a part of Baltimore where the median income is $17,000 a year. That's like a average, fraction of the median income in America. That's, a, that's, that's basically a middle-income country right there. But that's per household. That's not per person. That's per household. Right? So devastatingly poor. Yeah. Devastatingly poor. But it's not from lack of effort. Like these are people who get up every day, go to work. These are people who have to catch two and three buses to get to work and get home. Like they're tra- like think about it. People complain about being in traffic trying to get to work because it takes you forty five minutes in traffic to get to work. But you just get there in twenty minutes. We're talking about people who have to take two and three buses where it takes them two and three hours to get to work, sitting outside in the heat, sitting outside in the snow. But yet we're going to say they're poor because they want to be poor. No, they don't want to be poor, right? But. When you're young and you're going and you're growing up in a city like Baltimore and you, you're in a household where you don't know what it's like to have running water or electricity every day, where you're just used to your water getting cut off, you're used to electricity getting cut off, you're used to not having, you're used to not having food, you will do whatever it takes to survive and eat. And along the way, you don't have people in your community showing you what success looks like. You don't have people showing you like how you go to school to then go to college to then get a career. Like careers aren't talked about, right? Like in these communities, because everything about their daily life is survival. They don't even have the they don't even have the bandwidth to strategize a better future. And we don't give them those support. The support we do give them, we give them resources to live. So we give you food, we might give you shelter if you can get finance, if you can get federal aid. But even within, and then we'll show you how to put a resume together. But what's a resume when you haven't worked anywhere for like four or five years because nobody will hire you, right? And so what do we actually do to move these people forward? We don't give them the opportunities to grow financially. Like if you didn't make it in high school and you make it to college, we just kind of let you go. It's not like you can go get a job at Bethlehem Steel and make 50000 a year and support a family. It doesn't exist anymore. And that's why, you know, we need more programs. So, like, there's a company called Catalyte, where if you go there, they have a test. If you pass their test, their aptitude test, they say they can train you to be a software engineer in six months. No matter who you are, you walk off the street, take this test, six wow. months, you can have a job as software That's engineer. revolutionary. It makes sense. We should have things like like this for all types of jobs. Like, you don't have to go to college for four years to, to work in HR. You don't have to go to college for four years to be a media buyer. You can literally like we haven't thought about what the next wave of apprenticeship could look like. Like so many of these jobs, we say you have to go get a degree. Like, no, you can literally set up apprenticeships where you can learn to be a media buyer. You can learn to do, you know, social media ads. You can learn to do H. It's all these things that we can learn, but we don't give people the opportunity to do that. And so you have a whole swath of of our country who's left out of the opportunity to grow economically. That's really interesting because we make it rain in these areas with federal money, right? And it doesn't seem to move the needle, right? So it's like these apprenticeships are a way to make an investment instead of just 
blowing money that doesn't really lead to better outcomes. 100% because the money that we're blowing is just to deal with your, your basic needs of just survival. You need to get beyond survival to a place where you can be comfortable enough to actually move forward. Like, here's a crazy stat. The the number one reason for people dropping out of community colleges, like community colleges where you're trying to do better, you're, you're going the way you can, it's one life event. One life event, and that one life event could be getting your car towed. Because now that you got your car towed, you don't have a way to get to work, and you don't have the money to get your car out of impound. And so how are you going to go back to school? You're not. Like, little things like that can throw somebody's life off. But you're like, getting your car towed, like, just get AAA. You don't have a problem. Like, if you come from a community where the median household makes 17000 a year, you got to make a lot of hard choices. And so we just give you, and so we make it rain and give you money just to go, just to continue with the survival mode and survival mentality without actually investing in the people to help them grow. Um, and that's just the way I think about it. But there are exceptional people in these areas. And we see that time and time again throughout history is that, you know, wealthy areas don't tend to produce more exceptional people than poor areas. In fact, it's, it's, that's the one thing that's equal opportunity. The one thing that is different is environment and opportunity. So how do we empower exceptional people that are not born into such luck to help their communities change? Because the problem is we deify exceptionalism. You can't view these communities through the prism of the folks who are exceptional because that's fundamentally going to leave out the majority of folks. And then what you do is you deify these folks who are exceptional and you put it on them to solve the problems for their community. When it wasn't the problem they started to begin with, right? And so everybody has decisions to make in their own life. And I can't fault anybody who says like, look, I made it out. I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to deal with that stuff anymore. That's perfectly fine. It makes sense. Of course. But we're not setting these communities up for true success. If all we want to do is say, look, so-and-so made it. You can too. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, There was a young lady who um, I was working with a robotics club in in inner city, Baltimore. There's one young, young lady on the team was exceptional. She was doing really great. Then all of a sudden, she, and you know, she was on her path to being a computer science major, going to college and everything. And one day she stopped coming. And then she stopped coming to school. And so checked in with her to find out what was going on. And what happened was she had gotten a job at McDonald's to help her mom pay bills because they didn't have electricity. Got it. And they hadn't had electricity for three months. And she's like, I just need the help. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You were on the path to real success to getting out. And her whole thing was like, one, I don't know if I'm good enough for college. Two, I can't afford college. Three, we need electricity right now. And you said, no, you know what we did? We got her an internship working for the guy who was like the coach for the robotics team. He ran a tech company. And through her internship, she was able to help her mom. She ended up getting a scholarship with a full ride to college and is now a software engineer. She is an exceptional story. But did you hear all the things along the way where people had to step in to make sure she got there? But we are all like that. If people hadn't stepped into my life, I wouldn't be where I am today either. We're all in that situation. We are. But then we need more people like that gentleman who hired her as an intern to help 
more kids like her because the amount of exceptional folks that are in these communities is much larger than the amount of exceptional folks that actually make it out. And that's the part that's getting missed, right? And so it's like, how do we truly support all of these exceptional people to make it out? And we don't, and we don't provide the resources for that. We don't, like, it can't just be the exceptional people who made it out to come back. It's all the other folks in the community who care about the community support, the local leaders, the local businesses to really pour into these young people in these communities. And not just the young people, their parents too. And we don't do enough of that. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. So, Mac, you're someone who, uh, you know, still goes to these communities. Is it demoralizing to be there? These are violent places. These are places with poverty. Like, I feel like I get anxiety when I when I go to, you know, poor areas. So do you because I feel like I want to change it. I feel like I want to, you know, make a difference. And, you know, and it, it doesn't seem like we know where to start with this type of stuff. I do my I don't feel uncomfortable because, like, I'm from those communities. Like, I know these people. These are, like, my friends, my family members. These are people I grew up with. But it is heartbreaking. But it's heartbreaking more so because so many people don't understand the true realities of these communities. Right? You you see the stories. You watch The Wire. You think that's all it is. But there's so much more of a story to be told that's like, these aren't lazy people. These aren't people who don't want to work. These aren't people who want to be poor. These aren't people who want to live on the system. These are people who are just trying to survive. And they need to figure out a way to live life beyond just survival. But we never give them that grace. We automatically put them in these buckets. And so for me, I'm always encouraged by the, the work that a lot of community leaders are doing. And like for me, you know, what little bit I can do helping, you know, I'm a VC, I'm investing in companies because I want to find companies that can grow to be unicorns and be worth billions of dollars. But that's also why I invested in a black woman out of Baltimore who was a single mom who had an amazing idea for a product that nobody wanted to back. I've now backed her. Her company's now growing. You know what? She's employing and helping people from her community. You know what else she's doing? She also has a nonprofit where she goes into these communities and she teaches young black girls and gets them excited for STEM education, for, you know, science, technology and engineering through makeup and jewelry. Last week, she had a session where she had young girls like elementary or middle school ages creating LED earrings. <laughs> they created <laughs> earrings that lit up. And those That's little girls thought that was accessory. so cool. <laughs> right? But like, but like, it's a young lady like that who's now empowered to do more good works. And so, you know, that's how I help. And hopefully one day I'll be able to do more. But yeah, for me, like, it's heartbreaking, but moments like that are encouraging. So what is VC? For people who don't know, what's the simplest term? Is it just money that you invest in people and you take a piece of their company? So venture capital is a subset of private equity, which basically means we make investments into private businesses, right? Uh, most people know like uh, financial advisors, they take your money and they invest it into public companies. So they invest in the stocks, right? We do the same thing. We just invest into private companies. And in my case, companies that are just getting started. So I am a glorified financial advisor. Wealthy people give me so, their money and I put their money behind companies to help me make more money. So your company, Rare Breed, is the Rare Breed the founder that you're referring to? Yes, Rare Breed is the founder I am referring to, 
So you invest in founders. You're a people first company. What what do you look for in someone who fits the rare breed, you know, ideal? Every company and every founder is its own unique situation. But I'm looking for one from a business standpoint. I'm looking for people who have a, a very unique and direct opinion of way on how they do customer acquisition, experience, and retention. If you show me you know how to find customers, you can get them to buy your product, and they can keep coming back, then you might have a chance to actually win. And by having that mindset, it allows me to take out my own biases where I don't have to know exactly what market you're in. If I know that you find customers, they love it and keep buying it, they love it and they keep coming back to buy it, well, that's how we become the firm that never misses out on the opportunity to invest in a company like Spanx, right? You can imagine, you know, when Spanx is first pitching to a bunch of VCs, like, there are a bunch of folks who don't get it. But the moment she says, well, you know, I go to these department stores and sell it to women. Women love it. And most women are going to buy four of these a year. Okay. Like, I don't need to know everything about this. You clearly figured out a market that and something that's working. And then, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the intangible. So, like, the, the woman I mentioned who I backed in Baltimore, I was working with her for, like, three years, and nobody wanted to invest in her. And so what she did was she became a surrogate mother. She gave birth to twins to raise the money to start building her prototype. You can't tell me that's a person who won't do whatever it takes to make to be successful. You know, like, that level of grit, most people will never be able to see. And then on the flip side... I invested in a 17-year-old kid out of Baltimore who basically hacked Venmo to get his first 25,000 customers. One of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. I just made the bet on him because he was one of the smartest people I've met, right? And so every founder in every situation is different. But it's those unique things about them that kind of set them over the edge. We just committed to a company the other day where we're talking to the founders, a really cool company and I know it's on LinkedIn that he had ran this nonprofit helping returning citizens or people who are returning out of jail. And I asked him about it. He's like, yeah, you know, my dad was a lawyer and he was a pioneer in justice reform. And he's like, you know, really helping people and supporting people is really important to me. And that's why I, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're definitely the kind of person we want to invest in. Right. So it's those it's those things that sometimes go beyond just the business that we look for. And these are these are people that the traditional venture capitalists would have never discovered because they're not in Baltimore. They're not in your community. They're not interacting with these people. And you're going to events to meet these people, correct? Absolutely. I, I mean, before we had a global pandemic, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in my community and other communities. You know, I spent a lot of time in Birmingham, Alabama and St. Louis and Detroit where you get to meet these folks, you get to go in these communities, you go you go speak at a Chamber of Commerce event, you go speak at um, Urban League event, you go hang out at the Lesbians Who Tech local meetups. I can't tell you how much crap I got when I used to work for the investment of the state of Maryland for going to the Lesbians Who Tech meetup. They're like, why are you going to this event? I was like, it says Who Tech. Like, I'm looking for tech entrepreneurs. Like, I might find one there. You and don't discriminate. Like, oh. uh, equal opportunity here. <laughs> that's, that's such a novel concept, right? Um, and so I just learned that when you go wow and you're intentional, you get access to far more people and far more entrepreneurs than you do just waiting for them to come to you. Yeah, well, you talked about the 17-year-old kid, right, uh, that sent people a penny on Venmo to get, bring them to scholarme.com. That's pretty interesting. What ended up happening to that 17-year-old? 
So that 17-year-old Femi um, ended up getting some money from us at the state of Maryland, used that to go live in New York and raise 500000 from a bunch of ex-Goldman Sachs folks, ended up going to Y Combinator, which is the premier uh, startup program in the country, raised $2.5 million coming out of that, got some money directly from the founder and got led by a large venture firm, and now has a company that is growing by leaps and bounds and will have some major updates coming out soon. He's now 21, he's now a 21-year-old black kid from Baltimore running a company worth multi-millions and is on the pathway to being a really large fi- a fintech company. Uh, so scholarme.com, check it out. Um, big things coming. So have all these investments been profitable for you? Because, you know, it almost seems like uh, people would say, oh, you know, you're just doing social good, right? Like, are you making money? That's what's the point of the business, right? So <laughs> I mean, I have, long... to ask, I have to ask the obvious question, Mac. It takes a long time to get the money back because here's the thing. Like, as a VC, when we invest in companies, we get paid back typically one of two ways. A company goes public or gets acquired. That's a really high bar and it takes a long time. So, but I will say many of the companies that we've invested in and that I invested in previously are still doing well and are moving in the direction of being very successful investments. I do not do this just for the social good. Like, yes, do I care about diversity? Do I care about social good? I do. But my job, the point of my job is to make money for my investors. That is my job. People give me their give me their money to make them more money. So every investment I'm making, I'm making it with that in mind. Now, most companies are going to fail. I know that, but that's why we invest in companies. That are, that's why we're looking for companies that are going to be worth a billion dollars. That way, those successes outweigh and cover up all the failures, because it's running a company is so fragile. So, is this model of VC? a bit more profitable because you're dealing with people who don't have family access to capital or friends and family. Typically, when you start your own business, the first money you get is from friends and family. Well, if you're of a modest background, that's not possible, is it? No, it's not possible at all. And so what I will say about investing as early as we do is it can be very, very profitable with smaller dollar amounts. Because when you invest in a company, you're basically putting money in at a certain valuation, right? You're at a certain value, and that sure. value grows out over time. Well, if you go out to Silicon Valley, you'll see companies like when they're first getting started, getting valuations of 20 million, 25 million, these very inflated numbers. You go to like a Baltimore, a Philadelphia, Detroit, you might find an early company where their value starts at 4 million, 5 million, 6 million, something far more reasonable something with much easier to attain expectations. But then from the investor standpoint, the opportunity to generate a lot more. So like in, in the case of a company that starts at 20 million as their valuation, and then they grow to a $40 million valuation. If you put money in, you've now two extra money. That's awesome, you've doubled your money. If you invest in a company at a $4 million valuation, and then they go to a $40 million valuation, you're now 10 extra money, right? So. The, the 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 profitability goes up very significantly from an investment standpoint. So it goes both. So you know there there's some real advantages to finding companies outside of these overpriced, overcrowded hubs. 
Well, it seems like the the economy writ large, everything's overvalued and overinflated in certain markets and just clinically dead in others. So speaking of that, you worked for the state of Maryland in investing in companies. Is it smart for the government to support, uh, you know, small business in areas that need it? A hundred percent. You know, the the largest purchaser in the country is the government. Right. The 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 the. the the company that has the largest amount of money to spend in the United States is the government, right? And so if we want to jumpstart these communities, if we know, like, hey, we're, we're, we're lacking in jobs. We need more jobs in America. You said it already. Most jobs come from small businesses. But small businesses don't fit the venture financing world or other kind of investment worlds. Then where do you get your money to go? The government should be there to kind of supplement, I mean, in my opinion. Right. Um, and then in well, the start- it's, a, it's the teach a man to fish principle. Right. If you teach them to fish, yes. they'll go fishing by themselves. If you just give away money, the money runs out and then you're done. Yeah. But that's assuming that the person you gave the fish didn't take that fish and turn the bait to make more fish to go catch more fish. Right. Like how like that discredits people's ingenuity. Right. And people's want to do more. Um, so fundamentally, I believe that in the state of Maryland, um, where I work, the Maryland Technology Development Corporation is the largest fund of early stage tech companies in the state of Maryland. Right. Here's an interesting fact. They were the first investor in Squarespace. Squarespace is an amazing product that supports small businesses every day. And it was three young men out of University of Maryland who got their first check from the state of Maryland. Now, multi-billion dollar company. They are based in New York. But if they don't get that money from Tadco, I don't know if Squarespace exists today. I will also say that in within that organization, they have a fund completely dedicated to stem cell research and commercialization. Because they have been doing that work for the last 10 years, there are now companies being commercialized from the technologies that they were investing in years ago. They are now saving people's lives. That technology didn't exist without you know, the funding from the government. So do I think the government should be putting money in this? Yeah, I do. And I think they should be doing programs like that all over the country because then that's when you don't have these like dense hubs in these three locations, but you actually have strong ecosystems of both startups and small businesses all across the country. And so, yes, I think they should. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. 
Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty on demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival, presented by Capital One. Jason Aldean. Keith Urban. Jelly Roll. Old Dominion. Lady A. Riley Green. Ashley McBride. Brothers Osborne. Walker Hayes. All hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th. Stream only on Hulu. Starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. Our economy seems to be engineered to attract big business, right? It's very traditional for a big business to announce that they're searching for a new headquarters and local and state governments, you know, whip out all these incentives. Why don't they turn it on its head and invest in local people instead of trying to attract business? Because that's the way it's been done for so long. You need a community to see the value of a local business grow for them to really understand it. And I'll give you a great example. So in Birmingham, Alabama, they have, a, they have a tech ecosystem that's growing, and it's growing around one company. It's a company called Shipped. Shipped is a company that basically does grocery deliveries. Well, a few years ago, Shipped, which is based in Birmingham, Alabama, got acquired by Target for $500 million. So half a billion dollars for a tech company in Birmingham, Alabama. I promise you half a billion dollars goes f- f- a much further than a billion dollars in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, right? Of course. But because of that... They've created all these jobs. They also have all these folks who work there who have seen how to grow a company who are now starting their own companies. You now got a bunch of people who got wealthy through this funding round or this acquisition who are now becoming angel investors, who are now investing in the local community, right? Who are now starting their own restaurants, right? Like a whole bunch of things came out of this one central company. And so now the folks in Birmingham are like, how do we get another ship? Like, instead of us talking about bringing Amazon here, let's just have a homegrown company that actually cares about being here. We'll stay here. How do we create more, more of those? And as we start to see more communities have local winners like that, I think we will start to see these things happen. And, like, that's really what I want to see for these communities around the country. 
Well, it's really funny you mentioned that because we just went to Birmingham and Atlanta and talk about two cities that used to be the same size, the same economic might. And now Atlanta has the world's largest airport, is the home of Coca-Cola, Chick-fil-A, too many other things to name. And Birmingham is kind of fading into obscurity. I have friends who live there. I've been there many times. But this seems like the way out of their hole for communities that have fallen behind economically. It definitely can be a way out of the hole. But this also goes back to something you mentioned earlier, right? When something like that happens, the founders and individuals who got wealthy through those acquisitions need to pour back into the community, right? Every time you have a successful exit like that in one of these communities, and that doesn't lead to the creation of angel groups, venture groups, new companies, new small businesses, it sets a community back by a decade. Because you get one of those like once a decade. But once you get more of them, it starts to build on itself. So it goes from once a decade to once every five years to now you're just getting a bunch of them. Well, the moment you have one and they don't pour back into that community, then it leaves a gaping void and you have to wait for the next one. So I see Twitter as a place where most trolls go to bother other people. And somehow you've turned Twitter into this hub for, you know, finding talent and investing in people. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> um, I don't know, man. It was just luck. Like, I just, I was just tweeting about, I, I, I was, I started off just tweeting about the things I had learned in my, you know, time being an entrepreneur and now being an investor. Because there's, there's so many things that we take for granted in this in this industry that are just known, right? You just know you don't, that VCs don't sign NDAs, right? You just know that val, like valuations don't really have much to do with a business at the early stage. It's far more about leverage. Like, or, or reality for that matter. Yes, or reality for that matter, <laughs> right? You just know like to get to VCs, you got to network and, and meet people. You just know like for a pitch deck, these are the slides you need. And... There's a new first-time founder every day who doesn't. And so all I was doing is just trying to give advice and, like, demystify venture capital. And as I did that, you know, just more and more people were gravitating towards it. And so I just decided to keep doing it and be consistent with it. And it was really the consistency of it. And then also, like, you know, the, the content I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm always trying to help people. And so... I have the majority of people on my time, my majority of people who follow me, are of the same mindset. They're looking for help or they're looking to help others. And, you know, not as many of the trolls. The trolls still happen. Like, I get trolls, <laughs> I get haters, like it happens, but like, that's not what I do it for. I do it for all the people that I help. And then, you know, let's let's be honest, I do it for me selfishly, right? M me growing a presence on Twitter helped me raise my fund, right? Like, I'm still fundraising, but like, me putting my presence on Twitter and growing that, like, definitely helped. You know, there, there are people who I admire and look up to who know me now because of Twitter, which is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> well, it seems like you're in the right place, right time too, because your name is Mac the VC, right? Like you, you branded yourself, right? And we're, we're going through a moment here where we're having a lot of cultural awakenings about wealth gaps, specifically between black communities and just other communities, we'll call it. So have you leveraged that to try to, you know, advance the cause here because you know wealth gaps concern all americans not just black americans i have but and then i also i push back on it because people talk about venture like it's supposed to be the answer to the wealth gap and the problem with that is that assumes 
that most companies are going to be successful or that a lot of large swaths of these companies are going to be successful. And in actuality, most of these companies aren't. Most of these companies that I see that are coming up are going to fail. They're just, it's just the, the numbers, the stats. This is what's going to happen. And so knowing that, when you think about what it takes to close the racial wealth gap or just the wealth gap in general, you know, one of the things that happened as I was getting the fund up and growing and started to make investments was one of the companies I invested in is really fast growing, high growth uh, startup in Silicon Valley. It's a standard Silicon Valley, you know, a founder who had started two companies. They both exited. You know, he's been done really well. This is third one. This is going to be the big one. And so that company went from like zero to 16 million in revenue in like seven or eight months, something crazy, right? Raised a whole bunch of money. And so I got my best friend, who was my former CTO for my startup, I got my best friend a job as an engineer at that company. He's one of the, he's one of the first like three black people they hired. He's one of the first 50 employees. They paid him more money than he ever made in his life. They gave him better benefits than he had ever had. And they gave him more stock than I own in the company as an investor. And so when this company does well or does like a quarter of what everybody thinks it could be, he'll become independently wealthy, which means my godson will never have to worry about paying for college. That means my godson will probably have a trust account, you know, for when he turns 18, right? My friend and his wife will be able to do more real estate investing. That means the next generations of their family will actually have money to generate wealth. That has nothing to do with venture. It has everything to do with access. Because the only way you ever get a job to a company like that is you got to be in these circles. And so now a big thing that I'm working on is how do we give access to those types of jobs to more people? Because it's not just going to be the, the founders. It's also going to be the employees. And so how we really have a diverse employee pool where people can become one of the first 50 to 100 employees at, at the next Uber. Because if you're one of the first 100 employees at Uber, you're rich today. Of course. <laughs> Talk about a viral app, Uber. But, you know, what you're suggesting, too, speaking of virality, is basically culture is infectious. So you place your friend there, right? He's going to make some money. He's going to, you know, lead to different decisions at the company, right? His de descendants are going to have a different situation than he did. And it's kind of like that's kind of how you change things, correct? Having a very long-term view on things. A hundred percent. That's how you change things. It's, it's the long-term view. And, you know, when people ask me, you know, what's my most proudest things I've done having started my fund? One is investing in the woman who became a surrogate mother, but two is getting my friend that job. Like, I always felt bad that the starter we had wasn't as big as we thought it could be. But this was my chance to, like, give him that, to give him that access and to change his family's life and, and trajectory. And that's completely separate from like, what I do, where I say, you know, this is how we're going to change the world. Like, let me just get my friend a job. And he got two of his friends jobs there, right? Like, that, that helps and that makes a difference. And so, you know, some of his money and some of his access, and I, hopefully I'll be able to bring a little bit of both. So when you take these startup founders, right, and you find them, right, you, you found the 17-year-old, right, and then you kind of just stick them into this new ecosystem, what's it like? It's scary for them. It's a lot to learn. There's a, there's a huge learning curve. There's a bunch of skills they got to pick up along the way. 
but that's the stuff I can help you with, right? Like I can, I can teach you how to do a financials. I can, I can teach you how to put a pitch deck together. I can't teach you how to use a Venmo hack to get 25,000 users. Right? No, that's pretty novel, right? So like, <laughs> I, I know there's a bunch of stuff that we take for granted that a lot of VCs just want entrepreneurs to already have. I'm okay if you don't have that stuff because we can get you there. It'll take some time, but we can get you there. Um, because, you know, a lot of them are going to be you know scared. They're not going to trust investors. Like, it's just all these other things that come into it. And a lot of that just has to go with, like, cultural competency. Like, I'm okay giving these founders grace. It's like, you don't need to know everything. That's okay. You know, you're, you're going to make mistakes. That's fine. We, we can work through them. They're not, like, these aren't the most astronomical things to get over. And so, you know, that's what it's like. You know, you don't just throw them into the wolves, you kind of handhold them as much as you can and, you know, give them directions when you can. Isn't it crazy with telecommunications and, you know, mass travel that we've developed these bubbles of culture and we kind of don't talk to each other. And like this creates all sorts of, you know, hilarious and serious problems in our society. Like seriously, we don't talk to each other. We all, we all live here. We all pass each other in the street. Like, how do we not speak the same language? Because we don't grow like we're all in the same communities, but we're all in different. We all experience different cultures, right? And so it's very easy to not speak the same language when we are some combination of nature versus nurture. If you ask me, you're a little bit of both, but like the na the the nature you're in and forms the way you view the world. Like if you live in a community where the cops are always helpful, where you see people in your community like go to Dunkin' Donuts and buy coffee for the cops and you're always happy and it's always pleasant. They're around at the local fairs. You've only ever seen good from them. It's really hard for you to fathom somebody telling you that they see cops as the enemy. That they come from a community where cops don't care about them. Where I tell you that the first time I had somebody pull a gun on me, it was a cop when I was a kid. Right? The first time I was stopped and frisked, I was 13 coming back from playing basketball. The, the only time I had my jaw broken is when I got pistol whipped by a police officer because a good friend of mine was dating a white woman. Like, if I tell you that, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy and I have two heads. Because you're like, that can't be true. I know cops. All the cops I know are good people and they've only ever done good things. And I'm yeah, telling you the exact uh, opposite. I, 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 so, I think the truth is somewhere murkier than that. No, I don't no, think I'm, there's this idealized cop no, or no, these. No. But here's the thing. Yeah. You say that, but I had this exact conversation with somebody. Like, I literally had this exact conversation with somebody who told me, like, I don't believe you. All the cops I know are good people. Why would you be scared of the police? That's, they're here to help us. And it's because we, he wanted to ask some police officers from the, for some directions, and I was uncomfortable. He's like, yo, what's wrong with you? I was like, yeah, we don't, don't deal with police. Like, I had that conversation with a white counterpart of mine, right? And so that's how we end up speaking the different languages, because we all experience the world very differently. And then when you have difference of experiences and try to come to a consensus, it becomes really hard because if I've never experienced it that way, then it's hard for me to understand what you've gone through or even to believe you. 
No, it's true. Our experiences do shape who we are, and we do view the world very differently because of our experiences. I guess I try to see things that, you know, the truth is much murkier and messier than our experiences would suggest. I mean, I agree with you. Um, I just wish more people did, too. So how'd you... uh, How'd you get past, you know, this, this, how, how did you grow up in these surroundings and one day just decide, you know what, I'm going to make it. And not only am I going to make it, but I'm going to help people make it as well. I have really good parents. I have really good parents and I had a really good father who always instilled in me, one, the idea of entrepreneurship and ownership and who, who let me know that it was okay for me to chase my dreams because he didn't get a chance to chase his, right? And so having my parents there really helped. It gave me grounding. And then, you know, just hard work and luck along the way, right? Um, And then also recognizing, like, to your point, the only reason I'm here today is because of all the people who helped me. And so I would be doing them a disservice if I didn't help others. Well, I, I think in the end, it sounds like you're the rare breed. <laughs> there, there's a little something to that. There could be a little something to that. You know, Where do we find out more that, about? Go ahead, Mac. I was going to say, I, I guess I look for founders who uh, remind me a little bit of myself sometimes. Isn't that right? Yeah. It's sometimes it, it's hilarious that we look for talent and a lot of times we're looking for different versions of ourselves because we understand that. We don't understand people who don't resemble us. Um, where do we find out more about you, about Rare Breed and about Mac the VC? So you can find you can check out rarebreed.vc, it's our website, or you can find me on Twitter. It's um, at Matt Conwell, at M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. So check me out on Twitter, uh, Mac the VC. I'm pretty active. Yeah, I saw that. And we'll be, well, you're inspiring me to get on Twitter because to me, Twitter is this garbage can. that It's really hard to find good stuff on Twitter. So thank you for inspiring me to spend more time on Twitter, Mac. Absolutely. And uh, looking forward to tweeting back and forth with you. So we live in the world where bigger has been better for quite some time. We live in a world where everything is tooled toward big business, but really small business is the future. They're innovators, they create more jobs, and they really have more disruptive potential. But we see local and state governments pretend it's still the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And really, like the music stations tell you, we're in today, right? Today, You need homegrown businesses, specifically technology businesses. That's where most of the future wealth of tomorrow is going to come from. So we need to have our policies reflect that reality. When you have underinvestment, when you have brain drain in your area, whether you're in an urban area or a rural area, you need homegrown technology firms. When you create local venture capital funds to invest in local businesses, you're building in your tax base of tomorrow. And really, we don't see that. We saw our guests talk about it and how, you know, one company in Birmingham, Alabama can make all the difference because in the end, culture and economic growth is infectious and whole swaths of the country are being left behind. And the only way to reverse that 
is really to use the power of the purse to make investments in people who already live there. We can't always import prosperity. Prosperity has to come from the ground up. So let's stop giving subsidies to big companies to relocate jobs, which in the end, that doesn't create more jobs. It just shifts them around the country. Instead, let's empower local entrepreneurs to create solutions that make sense in their communities. And I think that's a much more practical way to do things in America today. Thanks to all of you for joining me as we followed the profit with Mac the VC. What an interesting way to disrupt the way we're doing things. And as we all know, today we need a lot of disruption in many corners of our economy. A shout out to our team of producers who work hard to make this happen. I'm David Grasso. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and give us a review so that others can learn what the show is all about. Follow the Profit is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also view us on YouTube. Part of the Gingrich 360 Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival. Presented by Capital One. Jason Aldean. Keith Urban. Jelly Roll. Old Dominion. Lady A. Riley Green. Ashley McBride. Brothers Osborne. Walker Hayes. All hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th. Stream only on Hulu. Starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Luis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.